Hey, uh, uh, last week, if you were here, we uh, showed a brief video of Dave and Courtney White. They work with campus ministry called Crew. And uh, we also gave you an opportunity to encourage you to take an opportunity to encourage them with uh, financial gift uh, and or um, your willingness to sit down and listen to them talk to you about ways in which they uh, may... They could talk to you about whether you'd not be interested in long-time financial support. We passed out envelopes. I have a few more envelopes. If anybody's interested in, in uh, connecting with the Whites, Dave and Courtney are over there. Um, so grab me after the service, and I'll give you one of the envelopes. It's just some envelopes you can mail to them that you can put on there. Hey, I'd be interested in um, sitting down with you for an hour and hearing about your ministry. So uh, we can hand most of them out, but i got a few more left. So if after the service today, just get my attention, and I'll grab, give you one. So, all right. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word this morning. God, we um, acknowledge that uh, your Holy Spirit's real. Uh, we acknowledge that your Holy Spirit is present today. God, it's good to laugh, um, and we know you're the author of laughter. Um, but also, it's good to even get to those parts of our soul that you want to challenge us with, you want to encourage us with. And so would you give us the ears to hear whatever your Holy Spirit uh, wants to say to us or in whatever ways he wants to challenge us this morning. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, um, who here in the last few months has run out of gas in their car? Anybody? Anybody run out of gas? Is that Paul Kostansky? You've run out of gas? And did what? It, you had to roll down the hill? Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. How many of you uh, regularly run your gas meter like close to the E and just kind of put a few gallons? Wow, a few gallons in at a time. Yeah, that's okay. How many people right now your e-light is on when you were driving to church? Anybody? Okay. All right. All right. Wow. <laughs> that's more than I, I guess we do too, so we always see who's supposed to go fill it up. Here's the question, though, in terms of another gauge, another tank. Uh, how's your hope meter reading lately? How's your hope gauge? Hope in terms of that part of you that is looking and hoping for what God you want to see God do in your life, some change in your life, not just change of status, change of place, change of job, but something that you want to see transformation in your life over. And my guess is, if you're like a lot of us, and like me sometimes, sometimes the hope meter's running pretty low, and you're living life, you're going through your days, you're going through your weeks, you're going through your relationships, and hope is kind of wavering down near the E-light. And for all I know, and I'm not making light of this, there are some of you who came here this morning where your light is on in terms of the amount of hope you have in your own heart and your own spirit about what you see or what you think God even wants to do in your life in the future. Maybe it's an issue in your family, with your kids, in your marriage, with your money, with your own kind of personal private life. Maybe there's something you've given up hope on. Like, I don't think that's ever going to change. 
and maybe your hope meter is really low and you're not even sure whether you should hope anymore because it's only disappointed you. You're not even sure if God... You know God can. You, don't know, you just don't know if God can or wants to for you because you're not sure anymore because the needle's been so low so long or maybe like the Costanzas, you park your car on a hill and the meter just is even reading less and it can't get there. What do you do? What do you do when hope is low? And do we just hope because the Bible tells us to or are there reasons we can hope? And what does hope mean that God's going to finish his work in us? Well, we've been doing the last number of weeks. We did a series in the book of Daniel, uh, Old Testament book of Daniel. And this is a case where I kind of subtitled it, Stretching Far, Far Beyond Comfort, because... Um, the situation of Daniel was they were way away from their homeland and hope was really, really, really low. Now, just a real quick, take a back picture, go to the next slide here. Make sure you understand where Daniel fits, because sometimes people don't always know where some of these things fit in the story of the Bible. So I've kind of made, you know, that you have the Old Testament starts with creation, this book of Genesis, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's part of Genesis. Uh, that's kind of the sec- second scene. If this was a DVD, you know, you know scene, scene, scene selector. Then you have the Exodus and the conquest where the people, because of Joseph going to Egypt, Joseph goes into power, but the whole of his family then goes to Egypt because there's, there's a famine. They're stuck, in, they're stuck in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And then Moses enters the story, and they leave Egypt, and they go to the Promised Land, all right? Then you have what's called, what people refer to in the Bible as the United Kingdom. They get to the Promised Land David becomes king, first Saul, then David, and then you remember Solomon. But David is the king under the United Kingdom where all of Israel is under God's people. Uh, is under God. And then there's the divided kingdom. Solomon has two, has two sons, and there starts to be some division and different people. And the, it, the country of Israel is split. And part of the splitness is not only because there was this is infighting, but to some degree God begins to judge his people because they're not listening to him anymore. And then things get progressively worse in the last phase of the Old Testament. So the divided kingdom would be like in Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings is when the kingdom's all united and it starts to divide. Then he hit some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the books of the prophets, and it's often and much of it is about the exile where God's people and God's land, Israel, Jerusalem, becomes devastated and overrun by enemies. And the people are in exile. They, they're, they're taken to other parts of the country. Their homeland is in ruins. And hope is at an all-time low. All right. So that's where Daniel fits in. It's one of what's called the major prophets. Only major because it's one of the bigger of the prophetic books in terms of just actual length in the Bible. So there's five different major prophet books. And there's a bunch of minor ones. And minor doesn't mean they weren't important guys. It just means... For some reason, they didn't write as much. So, so this is Daniel. So go to the next slide. So here's the situation. Like I said, the yellow was modern-day kind of boundaries and country names, just to kind of give you some context here. The green would be, well, Jerusalem is still where Jerusalem was. But Jerusalem is where Daniel, his family, his friends they, that's in, uh, lived or around there. Jerusalem was crushed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king. And as was the custom then, if you crushed a country, 
you would often take its brightest and its best people and take them back to your land, one, because you didn't want any leaders left, because you didn't want them to rebuild, but secondly, you wanted their insight, wisdom, and brains on your side, so you would train them to serve your kingdom. That's what happened to Daniel. They were taken to the city of Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, way, way, way beyond home. And way, way, way beyond hope. Because not only had they seen their homeland destroyed and Jerusalem burned to the ground, they were taken so far away. And the idea of ever getting back home, ever getting back to rebuild the temple, which was the center of their hope in God, the possibility of that was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly remote. Not unlike for some of you, when you think about the possibility of Something in your heart or your life or your family or your marriage or your finances or whatever. Something in you changing. Maybe it's becoming to feel more and more and more remote. Like you're in the city of Babylon and Jerusalem's way over there in terms of the kind of life you've always wanted. The kind of heart you've always wanted. The kind of marriage, family, life, internal life. Whatever it is, but it seems way far away. And what do you do in those situations? Because if you're human, which as far as I know we all are here, if you're human, you will have those times in life, maybe many times in life, where hope starts to wane. Because you just kind of wonder, is God doing anything in my life? Do you think you're doing all the right things? You're crossing all the right T's and dotting all the right I's with what you think is supposed to be the religious life. You go to church, you read your Bible, you do all those things. But when you look at you now and you look at you X number of years ago, you're like, I don't know if much has changed. So then your hope for now and a later slide shot that are different kind of think, I don't know if God's really changing anything. But you're still here. I mean, you have faith, but hope is kind of waning. All right. So that's kind of the scenario here. Now, we're going to, last week we looked into Daniel 2. Go to the next slide. Daniel 2. Remember, Daniel and his friends, his, uh, uh, his colleagues age-wise, so Daniel was probably 18, 19, 20, we don't know, young adult though, late teen, young adult. Uh, he was being trained to be one of the advisors for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has this really, really, really unsettling dream, and the Bible tells us he couldn't even go back to sleep. He was so unsettled by it, he called all of his advisors in, and which would almost be like calling his political advisors in, the best psychologists, the best philosophers, the best academics of the day, and said, can you tell me what my dream means? And then he said, as a matter of fact, not only that, I want you to tell me what my dream was. Because if you can't tell me what my dream was, I won't trust your interpretation. I mean, he was unsettled by all of this. And, and the, if you remember from last week, all his advisors were like, well, king, nobody's ever asked to tell what the dream was. Only the gods can do that, and they don't walk here among men. Nobody. So the king gets so irate. Obviously a very unsettling dream. He's like, okay, I'm going to kill all my advisors, which is pretty radical. But he's like, if nobody can tell me what the dream was, you're all dead. So they send all the guards and the captains of the guards to go kill these people. They go to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they were part of that advisor in training group. And they said, hey, we're here to, we're here to kill you. Because the king's mad because nobody can tell him what the dream meant. Daniel says, wait a minute. Can we have a little more time? I'm going to ask my friends, and we, I will too. I'm going to ask the God of heaven if he will reveal to me what the dream was. 
so we can, uh, so the king can know and so our lives can be spared. They're given a little time. That night, Daniel's given a vision by God, and we talked last week. God does give supernatural wisdom. All of us need it. Uh, wisdom is not simply uh, academic smarts or street smarts. Wisdom is when God gives you supernaturally insight into a situation that you would not normally have. Right? So that's what biblical wisdom is, insight from God into a situation you wouldn't normally have. So God gives Daniel insight into a situation he doesn't normally or humanly have has a vision and again don't think vision like he's you know high on drugs and having hallucinations it was just a picture god put in his head in the middle of the night where he's like okay i think i know what the dream was so don't make it more dramatic it was supernatural but it's not unlike anything that can happen to any of us where god gives us insight and wisdom god gives daniel a picture what the dream was daniel tells the guy know what your dream was and remember last week i said uh, Daniel said, go to the next phrase. That part ended with, he said, Daniel said to the king, he who reveals secrets has shown you what's going to happen, and it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else or I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you, and here, read this about you as well, God wants you to understand what's in your heart. So when God gives wisdom, he's helping you and me understand things in our heart that we can't quite figure out. All right, so that's what we talked about last week. Now, Daniel goes on to interpret the dream for the king, and this is where the whole idea of hope came in. So let's go ahead and uh, start here. In Daniel chapter 2, this image is part of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. So I'm going to start in verse 31 of chapter 2. So uh, listen, and as I read this, it's describing this particular image. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. So again, this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that unsettled him when he woke up. He's like, what statue, all this incredible gold, silver, bronze, and then some rock comes out of a mountain, not cut, and it smashes the feet, then it smashes the whole thing up. So Nebuchadnezzar obviously is unsettled because he's like, is this about me? What's going on? All right, now, next part of the passage. Go to the next slide. That was the dream, Daniel said. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over the inhabited world, and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. All right, then he goes on. Go to the next slide. So he goes on. I'm just gonna, now Daniel goes on to explain what it all means, all right? But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to the world. So Daniel's it's prophecy, it's... He's seeing ahead what's going to happen, and this image was God's way of showing him those things. 
Following that kingdom, there'll be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that three, these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, and they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. All right, now, at this point, you're like, okay, iron, clay, kingdoms, whatever. Typically, go to the next slide. Typically, most people understand, most commentators, most studiers of the Bible, what they're saying is Daniel, what he was seeing was the progression of world powers that would control what was then the known world. It was then the Babylonian Empire said, King, you're the Babylonian Empire, you're the head of gold. After you, and Daniel didn't say all this, but this is kind of what's happened historically. The Medo-Persian Empire, after that there was the Greek Empire, after that there was the Roman Empire, after that there was some combination of the Egyptian Empire. So it was kind of this, okay, King, this is what your dream's all about. But if you remember also in the dream, and leave it on this slide here, during the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms. All right? It will crush all these kingdoms. Now, you kind of get a sense this rock he's talking about is something that has to do with the kingdom of God. It has to do with Jesus. Again, Daniel doesn't know all this. Daniel has been given this insight by God. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain. Remember, there was a rock cut from a mountain that came and smashed the statue. It came and crushed the piece of the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. All right, now, so what often people do with this kind of passage is it becomes kind of this major, almost like crossword puzzle. Okay, which kingdom is he talking about? It was the Medes and the Persians. It almost becomes like this history, history puzzle lesson, lesson. Okay, that kingdom must mean this. And it... As a biblical student, yes, we need those things are good to know because it helps us understand that God was giving Daniel supernatural insight into what was going to be happening in the world. But if you simply stop and say, okay, we filled in all the blanks, we know what's this and what's that, and we know which empire is this, and wow, what a neat dream, and wow, that God, God knows the future. That's not the point of this passage. Yes, God knows the future. Yes, God knows your future. Yes, God is in control. But back up for a second and think about who this book was written for. Daniel the prophet was not writing for the Babylonians. He was writing for the Jewish people who were then in exile, whose hope meter, the gauge of hope, the light was already on and empty because they thought, are we ever getting back to Jerusalem, this thing that we know from the Old Testament that God keeps talking about of a day when he is in charge, a day when his way will be dominant, a way when the influence of God becomes over the whole earth, is that ever even going to happen? Because really the ultimate question they're asking is, am I ever going to be in a situation where I can become the person I believe God wants me to be? Because they're stuck in 
way, way out in exile. They know the temple's smashed. So not only the hope for their national uh, rebirth, which meant their spiritual rebirth, that's how they understood it, not only was that crushed, they just, they're stuck in thinking, I guess, I wonder if God, all this stuff we've been taught growing up in Jewish synagogues, is it all a bunch of baloney? Because it's not happening, it seems way out there. Not unlike you or I might feel about, yeah, I got this stuff in my life, and it seems like it's been there for years, or this issue, and this problem, this bigger issue, or I, I don't see any change in me. And how hope gets really lost. So, now put yourself in the mindset of you're the Jewish people, we are the Jewish people in exile, and we're reading this, and the message that God is telling these people, us, through Daniel is, is that what you're experiencing right now is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that the, that the influence of Jesus will prevail in the end of all. It's, and the problem is there's no timeline. This, there, I wasn't, no, we don't know. You don't know exactly the timeline that God's going to work things out in your life. But what Daniel is writing this, the reason God has Daniel write this is not for history buffs to figure out what's going on. It's so those who are frustrated, lost, and hopeless about their own spiritual lives, the Jewish people that time, can be absolutely sure that, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of, there's actually going to be more problems in the future. But in the end, the kingdom, the influence of God prevails. In the end, God will prevail. In the end, God will do work in your life. So here's the question I'm going to ask for this, for this, for today. And you have to fill in the blank. The blank that you are now, it's not a question, it's a statement actually. The blank you are now experiencing in your life is not the end of the story. See, because what the Jewish people would fill it in is it would be exile. The exile that I'm now experiencing, it's not the end of the story. What's the end of the story is transformation. So you might put in there... The spiritual deadness that I'm now experiencing. Or you might put the frustration I'm now experiencing. Or the captivity to sin that I'm now experiencing. I can't seem to break out of this cycle of this certain habit. Or the secret stuff in my heart that I can't seem to shake. Or the self-condemning thoughts that I seem to live under. This whole dark cloud of self-condemnation. What is it that you would say is now your experience? And again, I'm talking about things that are not what you wish they were. Some, something about your heart, your spiritual life in which you feel like, I don't think it's ever going to change. What is it that you would say that? What would you put in that blank? What do you now experience? And what Daniel says to the people, Jewish people, 2,600 years ago, what the Holy Spirit says to us today is, what you're experiencing now is not the end of the story. It's not going to be a never-ending battle with uh, no end in sight. You are not, it's not the end of the story. God will prevail. God, Jesus' promises, 
he will not stop working in your life. Go to the next slide, because I'm going to... There's a passage in Philippians, and uh, I tell this story about once a year, and it just seemed like it was something timely to do today. I, I, I say this often, and I tell this because I think it's encouraging uh, for people to hear. When I was in seminary, my exile, my struggle, my hopelessness, my hope meter being on empty was that I had uh, some degree of an addiction to pornography. I was in seminary, trained to be a pastor, so you figure that one out. Figure out all the self-condemnation that was going on in my mind. And all the uh, hopelessness, the feelings of exile, the feeling of, you know, I've tried to battle this thing for years and no change happened, so maybe this is as good as it gets. And I, I don't doubt that some of you, same issue or even a variety of different issues, you may have the same kind of feeling, yeah, this must be as good as it gets. Because I've asked God to change me, and I've asked this to change whatever issue in your life, and nothing. So it must be as good as it gets, so I'll, I guess I'll keep going to church, read my Bible, check those things off just to make sure I keep my ticket valid for heaven. But in terms of joy or uh, fullness of life in this life, I'm just going to give up on that one because it's not happening. All right, That's how I felt. And I was trained to be a pastor, so again, go figure um, the complexities of my own person at that time. So I was about, the, the E was about as low as it could be. The light was on, and I was probably running on fumes at best. And uh, I, one morning, and this was a, actually this particular weekend, I, it was the lowest, I was probably out of gas coasting downhill at best, at best. I went to my mailbox at the student union at the seminar I was going to, and uh, I pulled out a note that I have, Right here, I'm not going to pull it out because I don't want to lose it. Uh, Saturday, February 11th, 1989 is when I pulled this out. So some of you weren't even born then. So God did work then, but you weren't born then. And uh, here's what this person wrote. I believe absolutely because God had given them supernatural insight and wisdom that they needed to pass on to me. Because this person had no idea of the hopelessness that I was experiencing about how I filled in the blank of the exile of my life, all right? This is what this person uh, wrote, and they didn't even sign it. It's anonymous, and to this day it's still anonymous. So although I, do, although I don't know you well at all, and this again, I'm, I'm reading this on a Saturday morning when the a, uh, empty light is not just on, it's probably flashing at me, all right? Although I don't know you as well, except as a teacher or a, uh, I, I taught an undergraduate class to computers. I don't know much about computers now, though, but I used to. I felt led to drop you this note. I cannot, help but, I cannot help but be struck by the intensity of commitment which you have to the teachings of Christ. It's encouraging to me to hear about your stories and your devotionals. I appreciate them because you point our focus to the greatest teacher of all and not to a career or as to a technique. And again, know that even though I was doing that, the E-light was on. Hopelessness was, was like stirring in my heart deeply. I cannot help but think that God has used that zeal and enthusiasm to plant seeds in the lives of others and to encourage them. How I, however, I know that s desiring to serve Christ takes as much energy and that Satan and that Satan must not want you to be so <laughs> this is probably about the time when I was reading it and I started crying too so 
and that Satan must not want you to be so zealous. Please be encouraged by the fact that Christ is working in your life, and it is noticeable. And this next part. And these are the things that God does in our lives. I don't, I don't really know why I was to write this note. I wish I knew this person. I could tell them. I, I know. Perhaps to encourage you. Perhaps to encourage you to remain steadfast and to be obedient. However, here's the scripture for you so that you may know that your labor is not in vain. And then wrote this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The rock that comes from the mountain that's not shaped by human hands, it will come and it will crush the enemies of your soul. And you will have, you will become the person that you've always wanted to be. Good work that will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's nothing in your life that Jesus has given up on. There's absolutely nothing in your life that Jesus has written over it, hopeless, nothing. Even though you've written it, and you may have written it in ink, there's nothing in your life that is hopeless. God knows exactly the nature of what you want to see change in your life. He knows your joys. He knows your spiritual victories. He also knows those places where you're hitting a spiritual wall and you're thinking, is this ever going to change? Just like Jews in Babylon. <laughs> we're stuck. Never. We're never going to be the kind of people we thought we're supposed to be. Being confident of this, he who began work, a good work in you will, not might, not maybe, not if he's in a good mood, but he will complete what he started in you. He will. Even though you give up on yourself, God will not give up on you. So I don't know what your fill-in-the-blank phrase was, but be confident like the people of God 2,600 years ago were to be confident. Be confident that God will not stop supernaturally working in your life. Because he, he knows what he, you can be. He knows how full of life and joy you can be. And that's exactly what he desires. And he will not stop till he gets there. Do not give up hope that God can do those things. All right, let's pray. God, for, the, for those here today, which may be many, who could easily identify a seemingly hopeless issue in their life. God, I pray that you, by the supernatural influence of your Holy Spirit, that you would, uh, that you would sear the word hope across their soul, like a neon light flashing. And that hope would be a hope that even that grows, that the light goes brighter, and that even this week, even this afternoon, if they hit a wall that just is, again, back to the hopeless wall, or if the, the bright E empty light starts flashing at them, I pray that your Holy Spirit would intervene and interrupt, and that your Holy Spirit, the light of hope, will begin to flash. That you will 
Because your promise is, God, you said you would do this, that you will complete what you started in every single woman or man here this morning or girl or boy here this morning. You said you would complete it. And you said your promises are trustworthy, so we are going to trust your promises and ask you, cry out to you that you will do that. And even this week that you will help each one of us see evidence of that movement in your life. That we will, you will increase our hope in you. Because, like Pastor Dan mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon, where else do we go? Where else can we go to be the kind of men and women that we know we're meant to be and that is full of the life that comes from you, full of the love, peace, joy, forgiveness that comes from you? Where else can we go? So we come to you and we ask you and we expect you to keep your promise to us because uh, we know you're faithful and you never, ever, ever fail us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, we finish every Sunday with communion, and we do that again, not as a simply as a religious ritual. It is a habit.